We are going to continue in the book of James uh, this morning, uh, again looking at Scriptures uh, chapter 2, verses 14 through 26. Uh, looked at one part of it last week, and we'll finish it up this week. Uh, the first verses of that passage uh, were we looked at were uh, the idea of, of some, well, it's summed up in verse 17. So, also, so faith by itself, uh, if it does not have works, it is dead. And what James was getting at was that faith and works are together. It's something that is a, it's, it's a concert of, of, act, of action together. You can't have one without the other. And some people will turn around and say, well, wait a minute. Paul says we're saved by faith alone. And that's true. We are saved by faith alone. So we takes us back to Ephesians, and we'll look quickly again there at Ephesians chapter 2. And uh, the, the first, uh, I guess, about ten verses there. You were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. Following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among them, uh, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Just stopping there for a second as the reality is, is that there isn't any one that is innocent. We have all sinned. We, we, we use the Scripture, we've all sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And so there's none that is, is innocent. And so we were all children of wrath. As a result, what is it we really deserve? Judgment. Okay? We deserve the wrath of judgment. And that's, you know, what is owed to us in the sense of, you know, I, I just, the reason why I mention that, I guess, is because I hear so often lately of people saying, you know, I deserve or we deserve. And I'm thinking, you really don't know what you're saying. Do you really truly want what you deserve? And the answer is no, I don't. And thanks to Christ, we come into this verse 4 with, but God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which He loved us, when even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with Him and seated us with Him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages we might show the immeasurable riches of His grace in kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is a gift of God. Not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. And those good works are what James is talking about, should be obvious in our life. And so what we have here, and and again, just looking at a couple of verses in, in, in Ephesians, is the fact that we were dead and now we're alive. We were raised up and seated with Christ. And so that picture of saved by grace through faith is really powerful. Don't forget that picture too is that we are saved through faith, but not of our own doing. It is what? 
a gift from God. We don't earn it. We can't you know, do enough good deeds to, to, to undo our sin and come before the throne of God. There's nothing that we can bring to Him. And so, it's His grace, His gift, and as a result, none of us have the right to boast. Uh, you know, it's, uh, it's, it's, it all belongs to Christ. All the glory, all the, uh, all the, the praise belongs to Christ. So, saved by faith, yes. But a saving faith is in the process of transforming us. I don't know how many times I use Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2 about the fact that we're not to be conformed to the ways of the world, but to be transformed into the likeness of, of what the Lord wants us to be and, and the likeness of Christ. And that is not done in our own strength. That's the work of the Holy Spirit in us. When we confess Jesus Christ with our mouth, when we believe in our heart that He is the Son of God, that He is the One who came and saved us, that He was buried and raised again, that He died for our sins, all of those things that go with that, when we recall that and we think about it, uh, and we recognize that at that point in time, at that very moment of confession of faith, the Holy Spirit indwells us. We literally have God in us. We are not gods. We are not God. We have God, the Holy Spirit, in us. As a result, we have a strength that we did not have before. We have access to a power that we did not have before. I am, I am prone to say, especially every time I goof up, which means I probably will be saying this a lot, um, is, is that I'm only human. And while there's a truth in that, I am still in the flesh, I am a person, I am a human, I am, a, I am more than that. I am indwelled by the Holy Spirit. I am a child of God. I am a part of the kingdom of God. And while I'm not there yet, I'm headed that way. And God is doing a work in, in us uh, to bring us into Him. And so that picture of, of we are more than, than human. We have the Holy Spirit to call on to give us victory over things in our lives that tear us down or tear other people down. And so that's what we are to be doing. We are to be working out our, our faith in such a way that not only to be doing the good works, but this idea of transformation, to be changed into the likeness of Christ. That's done by the power of the Holy Spirit in us. And as a result, there, it produces good works. And I, I think again of Ephesians 2.10 where it says... Uh, for we are His workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them, that they should be a part of our life. And again, that's what James is, is, is saying here, that works is a part of the believer's life. James says in chapter 1 about becoming doers of the Word and not hearers only. And in verse 21 of chapter 1, he says that the Word is implanted in us. God said that He would put His Word where? In our hearts. In the, the center of our being. Now, we all know that, that when we talk about our hearts, in our hearts, we're talking you know, not about the organ that beats and pumps blood through us, but we are using that as a, as a, a picture Without the heart pumping blood, we don't live. 
Okay, so the idea of in our heart is the source of, of our existence. Somebody might say, well, it's really in our brain. It's, it's, the whole picture is that it's in us. The Holy Spirit in us, working through us, and, and the Word is implanted in us. I think of, of Psalm uh, chapter 1 where it says, Blessed is the man who doesn't walk in the counsel of the wicked, and he doesn't stand in the path of sinners, and he doesn't sit in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the Word of the Lord, and on it he meditates day and night. I want you to think through that picture. We don't uh, you know, get our advice from the world. We get our advice from the Word of God as to how to live a moral life. Now, that doesn't mean, you know, somebody says, well, you can't depend on the moral to learn your, your trade in an apprentice context or something. That's not what he's talking about. What he's talking about is our advice to, to live a life of, of, of within the culture, within the people, within our relationship, with our wives, with our husbands, with our children, with our families, with each other. And that idea of where do we get our source of information as to what is right and what is wrong, what is good and what is bad, what is sin and what is, is, is something that is holy. We get it from the Word of God. We don't, we don't get that advice from the world. We also don't go, and as a result, let's reverse this. If you got your advice from the world, you would end up standing in the path of sinners. Because you would start to think the way the world thinks instead of the way Christ thinks. We're told to have the mind of Christ in Philippians chapter 2. Have the mind of Christ as, as, as to what He did. And we look and we see a sacrificial uh, gift of God working. He says He, he emptied Himself. And became a man, even a servant of men, even to the point of death on the cross. So there's the picture. That's the mind of Christ. Sacrificial. Putting other people first. You've heard me say this many, many times. God is first. The other man is second. And I'm third. And so we look at that way of of having the mind of Christ. To become doers of the Word. The Word is planted in us. And as a result, it's something that we are to meditate on. And to meditate is more than just to get your Bible reading and uh, your weekly or daily Bible reading done and, and, and say, oh, what a good boy am I, or what a good person am I. And, uh, and, you know, but to, to find time on a regular basis, to make time as part of your schedule, of, of your, your lifestyle, to look at the Word of God and meditate on it. To think about it. What is it really saying to me? And if I don't understand, how do I find out? Well, you talk to your, your pastor, to the elders, to other Christians that are mature, maybe the, uh, going and directing yourself to a book. There's so many resources available today. Uh, and and, and we, we study, we meditate, we think about how to apply. We accept Paul's teaching that he reveals in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 15 uh, or 16 and 17 that the word is god breathed it comes from god god has worked through the minds of men to bring us his thoughts his words his ideas if you will and 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 to see a, a, at least a glimpse of his character his holiness and to say this i want this i seek and he promises, if we seek it, we will find it. He will make it available. 
You'll see in a minute how that applies this morning. Hearers only, again, looking at, at, at James says, a, a person that is a hearer only is, is self-deceived. Uh, generally, it, it's implied it's a, a hearer only is a person without works. In other words, he's not doing the works of the Word of God. Competition, no, <laughs> and uh, and so we have uh, this this picture of, of of not being hearers only, but doers of the word, not self-deceived, but people who are are resting in Christ and and doing the works that God has put before us and called us to do. It tells us in verse uh, twenty-seven of chapter one of, of James that. Uh, he says, religion that is pure and undefiled before God, the Father of the, God the Father, is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. In other words, to minister to those in need, to reach out. And you think about that picture of, of ministering to orphans and to widows and to those people in need. That's a part of who we are as a church. And through our missions, we do that globally. Through our, our, our uh, benevolence funds, we do that locally. Uh, I, I think of the number of times that this church has responded to local needs of, of, of families that have been uh, devastated because of a fire or because of illness, uh, different things that have happened, a loss of life where they, they need help just to, to, to bury a loved one. This congregation has come again and again and again to the need of people in this in this community. And it's not based on whether they're churchgoers or not. It was based on this picture that we are to reach out and to minister. This pure religion is the opposite of a dead faith. This idea that he's saying that, that reaches out is the opposite of a dead faith. It's where works are coming alive. And so we come back to verse 14. What good is it, my brothers, uh, of James chapter 2? What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can this faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, go back to verse 27, someone in that category possibly, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled without giving them the things needed for the body, that what good is that? So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. In other words, if it doesn't have this outgoing picture of what Christ would do in a situation, it's not a real faith. It's, and, it, and James is being very specific here. It's not a saving faith. That's harsh. That's hard for us to grab a hold of. But it's the reality. So often we get that idea that if I simply, you know, I go to church, I tithe, I do those few things that I would do within the framework of my worship and this type of thing, that everything is fine. But it's, it's a change of lifestyle. It's a change of the way you think. It's the change of what is important to you. Think of a gentleman in, in uh, San Jose in the late 70s working on some technology in his garage 
in the sense of stuff that was computer technology of some kind. I don't, I can't even begin to go further than that as to what it would do and what it was, other than the fact that he 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 came across a, a way of putting something together that hadn't been done that way before, and, and as a result, a, a number of, of uh, large companies wanted to own what he had. Well, he decided he was going to license it and, 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 and maintain the actual ownership of it, and, he li- and it, there was companies in Japan, companies in, in the United States, companies in Europe that were getting the license to this. He became a multi-millionaire literally overnight. And he went through all the things that would happen with sudden rush of money. Some of it was up front, big cash transactions. And it was kind of like the Cadillac for each foot and, and, and a, a house in the Los Gatos Hills and, and all the things that went with that. And then it hit him. He says, I'm completely ignoring God has blessed me in such an amazing way, he immediately scaled back. Now, he drove a Buick instead of, a, of the Cadillac, and it was a nice car, it was, and it was an upgrade from where he had been. He decided that he didn't need a house in Los Gatos Hills. He actually never got, quite got there. He was looking, but never quite got there. Got himself, though, a very nice home, and, and again, an upscale from where he had been, and he started giving, I'm not kidding you, 90% of his income. So much so that the churches that were that the church that he was involved with said, "This changes our our budget so completely that we do not want this coming into our budget alone." And they got together with a group of of churches together and a group of businessmen together to take this money as a separate account from these and these different churches determined together how to reach out into missions and and to digging wells in Africa and all these different things that they could do with this kind of resource. And it changed, it changed his life. And what he was living on was more than he had ever dreamed that he would have. And, and it was kind of like uh, when I started teaching uh, in, in, in the middle school ages, and I, I would say, what would, you know, how much money would be a great deal of money? And some would say, oh, $30,000, one of the kids in, in the math class, $30,000 or $50,000. I said, well, what would happen if you had a million dollars? Oh, well, I would give 10% to the Lord. And I said, but you were really excited when you just had $50,000. Would you consider more than 10%, more than tithing? Well, you only have to tithe. You know, that's not really what Scripture says. Scripture says, based on the way God has blessed you, to bless. To give according to the way God has blessed you. And so, I've seen in my lifetime some amazing things with people and their their generosity and their giving. And I've also seen it taken advantage of and misused. And what we are to look at is the fact that, that as we look around the world and we see things that, are, are, that we can respond to, maybe just in our community, maybe it's a neighbor in need, maybe it's just something that you can do that would be a, a, a meal for someone because you happen to know that they've just got home from the hospital. What a, a special blessing that can be. Keeping our eyes open, our ears open. I, 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 I say it like this, having the eyes and ears of Christ. 
so that we can see His way and hear His way and then hopefully speak words of His encouragement and His blessing. What James is working towards here is that we need a complete faith or a whole faith. I talked about this briefly last week. There's, and and I'm just, I, I know that this is just one way of breaking it down, but uh, uh, looking at it from three perspectives here. Uh, one of them is to have an intellectual understanding of the Word of God. By itself, it's not enough to have a, a, a saving relationship. You can know the Word of God. You can, you can be able to, to speak the, the Greek language and read the Greek language and, 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 and parse the verbs and all these kinds of things that need to be done as you study the Word of God and still not be saved. Have an academic, intellectual understanding. I know a pastor that could, that, that could you know, he could preach literally from a Greek Bible while he was preaching and do it in English. I, and I was always thinking that was amazing. And then one time he sat down and he, and he was the one that I've shared with before. He shared with me, he says, you mean you really believe the bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ? It was just his teachings that was resurrected. And I realized you can't be saved based on that understanding of Christ. But he could out-preach or out-read me in the Greek language. He could out-skill me in the Greek language. And, and I thought, wow, what a sad thing to be so academically right on and to be so far removed from the truth. You can actually have the intellectual belief and then believe that God is real, that He really exists, that it's really true, the Gospel is true, all of that. But then James says... The devil, the demons do that. So, intellectual tied with belief in the, that it's real, what's missing? It's that personal placing of trust and faith in Jesus Christ. I, I, I recall it put it, and, and, and I've never done it with a stool, but the idea is, is you have a, 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 a chair, we can call it the Jesus chair or the Jesus stool, you know, and I can say, this is a stool, and you know, and I can even tell you it will hold my weight. And until I what? Place myself in it or on it, does it become a reality as to serve what it was meant to do and to prove the point that it can do what I said it could do. And and the idea is, you know, it's actually the the parable is a Jesus chair. You know, I can put my wallet on this. I can put my keys on this. But until I sit on it, it's not 100% real. And that's where James wants us. He wants us to sit in the Jesus chair. He wants us, we are seated. We are set apart. We are we're made alive and we are seated with Him. Intimacy, an intimate relationship with the Holy Spirit indwelling us. In the context of a uh, saving space, uh, faith, I, I want to read again this one picture from, from R.C. Sproul. Uh, he said, uh, The Protestant reformers, in summarizing the biblical teaching, were clear that justification is by faith alone, but not by faith that is alone. Remember how I, I, that goes again. We are saved by faith alone, but not by faith that is alone. 
We are not saved by mere profession of faith, but by the possession of faith. And when faith is truly present in the heart, it necessarily, inevitably, and immediately makes the transition to bear fruit as, as, as good works of service to God and, and God and neighbor. These works in no sense merit a right standing with God. But if they're not present, neither is justifying faith. Let us be clear. Our good works do not get us into heaven. However, they do reveal the faith that lays hold of the benefits of Christ and takes possession of eternal salvation. We must always be careful to make the distinction that while faith alone justifies us, the faith that justifies us is never alone, but demonstrated to be alive through the works that we do. And so... R.C. Sproul, probably one of the most firm teachers on the context of, of uh, saved by faith and faith alone, uh, points out that it's but, but it cannot be in a, a real faith unless it is transforming, changing us to the point where the works that, that need to be done. And the works are not the same for everybody. God turns around and we look at all the different gifts that God gives people uh, in the, within the framework of the church. So that we come together as a body and with all our gifts together, we're able to minister one to another and to the community around us. The, uh, uh-oh, <laughs> lost my place there. To believe God is real, that Jesus Christ is real. We believe in His... And, and I, I, most of the time you hear somebody say His death, burial, and resurrection. But I'm going to say in His pre-existence as God. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And that He became flesh, that He actually lived the life of a man. That He died that He was buried on the third day, resurrected, and that He ascended, returned to His position in heaven. But now in a unique way. You know, when John sees Him in Revelation, he sees Him with what? The scars of the cross. He's permanently our Savior. He stands always is the one who will mediate between us and the Father. There will never be any condemnation for us as long as, as we're in Christ Jesus. James brings about two pictures of people of faith from the Word. As we pick up in, in verse... Well, actually, the, the, we'll go to verse 18 and, and, and 19 and 20, but then we'll start with 21 as, uh, as the picture of these examples. Someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works and I will show you my faith by my works. And he's implying there that by, you know, if you don't have works, if there's nothing happening in your life, if there's no transformation going on, then you can't show me your faith. 
And he says it, it requires this issue of change, transformation, works being a result. Uh, you believe that God is one, you do well, even the demons believe and shudder. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? In other words, you know, it, it, the, the, the demons have no works of, 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 of righteousness. But they still believe, he says, and they do what? They shudder or they tremble. You know, I used the picture last week of the demons of uh, the demon-possessed men of of Gesserinine that lived in the tombs. And when Jesus the boat lands, they come running down out of the tombs. And these were men that were unrestrainable. Nobody could restrain them. They tried, and it didn't work. And so people stayed away from that area. And as soon as they as they came running down the hill, you know, the first thought in your mind is that they're they're on the attack. And as soon as they got to the bottom of the hill, they fell at the feet of Jesus. And pleaded to not be judged yet. No, please. You know, and they recognized the authority. They recognized Jesus. They they understood who he was. They knew who he was. But it was not something that could that could deliver them, because there was no transformation. There was nothing in them that that would accept Christ. They were completely separate, and that's what he says. You know, if you have a faith that doesn't have, doesn't have a result of, of of a transformation, a working of God in you, it's no different than than the demons knowing who God is. Verse twenty one picks up with, "Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar?" You see that faith was active along with his works, and faith was completed by his works. And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness, and he was called a friend of God. And so we have this picture of Abraham as, as one whose faith was revealed through his willingness to offer up Isaac. We know the story well. I'm, I, I, I'm looking around here today and, and pretty well can see that I'm, I'm you know, kind of like preaching to the choir today. And so I, I recognize that, that we see that Abraham is the father of the Jewish nation and that he was, Isaac was the source of what the Jewish nation would come from. And yet God says, offer him. And Abraham, without any reluctance, didn't say why, and he wasn't given an answer. He wasn't given a reason. He was just told, "Do this," and he goes and makes the offer. And God says, "Hold it! Don't go any further." Provided the offering from a thicket next to it, and the lamb was an offering. And he said, "You, you, you've shown me your faith." And really, what it was was Abraham understanding his own faith. You know, God didn't. God knew Abraham's heart better than Abraham knew it, and and so what it was for Abraham was a growing and learning experience. Who else learned from that day? Isaac. A whole different picture of of how to relate to God for him as well. But anyway, Abraham, powerful picture of faith, and 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 he's and it's it is is. What James points out here, and as he's writing to a Hebrew people, all of them would know Father Abraham. But he says, you see that, you know, just, and again, he says, verse 24, you see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. 
But look at verse 25. This is extremely interesting to me. And in the same way, just as Abraham's faith, in the same way Abraham's faith is demonstrated and, and looked at, in the same way was not also Rahab, the prostitute, justified by works when she received the message, uh, messengers, which would be the spies from Joshua chapter 2, and sent them out by another way? I have to say, I have not spent much time looking at, and, uh, at Rahab. She's not mentioned a, a, a lot in Scripture, but everybody in this room probably knows who she is. Rahab the harlot. It's like her last name. She was a prostitute. Where did she live? Jericho. Jericho was one of the worst cities in the Canaanite groupings of, of people in the sense of how they lived their lives. Their, their, their worship was included child sacrifice. Uh, it was, it was uh, included prostitutes and, and having sexual relationships with prostitutes as part of their worship. It was, it was a very sick thing. In fact, it's interesting. The land that was promised to Abraham had to do with where the Canaanites were. But he said, you won't, your, your people, meaning you and your seed, they, you won't receive it until their time is fulfilled. Well, this is the time that their time is fulfilled coming up. Their judgment is at hand. Just like Sodom and Gomorrah have reached their limit, the Canaanites here in Jericho were reaching theirs. So Rahab, and I, I, think, I think of the contrast. Father Abraham, father of the Jewish nation, in contrast with Rahab, a, and by the way, a Gentile. Not a Jew, a Gentile. Prostitute. And are both being used here parallel together as having the same faith. I, I just look at that and I don't know if you can see how amazing that is, but it would you know a number of, of Jewish people would look at this and say, wait a minute, you can't put Abraham and, 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 and Rahab in the same paragraph. I'm sorry. It just it, it, it's not right. But it's an amazing thing. I want you to go to Joshua chapter 2 just really quick to look at, at what happened. And I, and I know that this is a familiar story for you. But uh, they've wandered for 40, the Hebrew people have wandered for 40 years uh, in the desert because they were unwilling to go in because of the fear of the giants in the land and, and the, the preparedness of, of the various peoples there. And they said, we, there's no way we can win a battle against them. And, and God says, okay, you, you, you would rather go back to Egypt or you'd rather live in the desert. You're going you're gonna to die in the desert. And until that generation passed, which was 40 years, and a new generation of people had been raised up and trained and Joshua at the leadership to go in and to begin to take the, the land that God had promised. Jericho happens to be the first big city in their way. And so Joshua does what any prudent commander would do. 
commander of his army. He says, Joshua, the son of Nun, sent two men uh, secretly from Shadim uh, as, as spies, saying, go view the land, especially Jericho. And they went and came into the house of a prostitute whose name was Rahab and lodged there. And it was told to the king of Jericho, behold, men of Israel have come here tonight to search out the land. Then the king of Jericho sent to Rahab, saying, Bring out the men who have come to, to you, who entered your house, for they have come to search out all the land. But the women had taken the two men and, and but the woman had taken the two men and had hidden them, and she said, True, the men came to me, but I did not know where they were from. And when the gale, uh, when the gate was cl- about to be closed at dark, the city gates were always closed at dark and, to, to protect the city, and nobody at that point got in or out. And it says, and when the gate was about to be closed at dark, the men went out. I do not know where these men went. Pursue them quickly, for you will you you will overtake them. But she had brought them up to the roof and hid them with the stalks of flax. And she had laid in the or, uh, that she had laid in order on the roof. So the men went to pursue after after the two spies on the way to the Jordan as far as the fords, and there were several of those, so it's hard to say quite where that might be. And the gate was shut as soon as the pursuers had gone out. Now, if the gate is shut and it, it won't be open until the morning, where what what do we know that the spies are now what? They're stuck inside on the wrong side of the gate. <laughs> They're stuck inside Jericho. So the situation, Joshua sends two spies to, to, to go in and scout the land, see what, the, what, what they're going to be up against. They, it doesn't tell us why Rahab's house. It doesn't tell them what brought them to there. Uh, I, I, some people have got some crazy ideas, which happens to do with, you know, <laughs> the house of prostitution, this type of thing. I'm sure that it had nothing to do with that other than God's providence. I shared with you a few weeks ago, God's providence in my life through a snowstorm, putting me into a restaurant, sitting at a table with, because the restaurant was full, sitting at a, a table that had an empty seat with it, and the first time that I sat and actually listened to someone who shared the Lord. And I walked away with a different opinion as to how to approach reading the Scripture. It was a year and a half before I accepted the Lord, but God, I believe that snowstorm was for me. And I don't know how many other people, because God's providence was working across the land. But the reality was for for me, it, it, it got me there. Whatever reason they, they knew, they, and so one, one guy said, well, her house was on the wall, which means she would have a access out the, outside of the wall so that they would be able to get away if they needed to. doesn't say that. All I know is, is that what it says is Rahab was the house that they went to. I feel they were providentially directed. And there's a reason, as we will see. The question would be, why did Rahab protect these spies? She's a Canaanite. She lives in Jericho. It's her hometown at this point. Why would she, why would she 
betray her town, why would she actually commit an act of treason? Verse 8, before the men lay down, she came up to them on the roof and said to the men, I know that the Lord has given you the land and that the fear of, of you has fallen upon us and that all the inhabitants of the land melt away before you. For we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea before you when you came out of Egypt and what you did to the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan, uh, to uh, Sion and Og, whom you devoted to destruction. And soon as we heard it, our hearts melted and there was no spirit left in any man because of you. For the Lord your God, He is God in the heavens above and on the earth beneath. Did you hear that declaration? For the Lord your God, He is God. She didn't say He is a God or that He is a superior God. She just simply said He is God in the heavens above, which means the universe, and in the earth beneath. The, the earth itself. The reason she protected them was she truly believed they were men sent by God. She truly believed that through those men, God was going to bring a judgment against the Canaanites. She says, all of our, our people are melting <laughs> you know, in the sense of their, 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 their boldness and, and their ability to stand. They're, they're, they're devastated because of what they hear about you and what God is doing for you. You walked across the, 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 the sea on dry land. You defeated kings that had been undefeated up to that point. You, you, you did all of this. And, and, and we, I know that God is with you. She's choosing a side. And from what she can see, there's only one side to choose. The one that God is on. And so she's saying, I want to be on your side. I am, and, and that's why she protected them. Now, Rahab has a request that goes with this. Verse uh, 12, says, Now then, please swear to me by the Lord that as I have dealt kindly with you, you also will deal kindly with my father's house and give me a sure sign that you will save alive my father, my mother, my brothers and sisters and all who belong to them and deliver our lives from death. She sees death coming to Jericho. And the men said to her, Our life for yours even to death. If you do not tell this business of ours, then when the Lord gives us the land, we will deal kindly and faithfully with you. Now there's a clarification that goes with this. Then she let them down by a rope through the window, for her house was built onto the city wall, so that, the, that she lived on the wall. And she said to them, Go into the hills, 
or the pursuers will encounter you and hide there three days until the pursuers have returned. In other words, she says, don't go the way you came because that's the way they're going to look for you. That's what she's implying here. Instead, go this way and hide in the hills over here for three days okay, until the pursuers have returned. Then afterwards, you may go your way. The men said to her, we will be guiltless with respect to this oath of yours that you have made us swear. Behold, when we come into the land, you shall tie this scarlet cord in the window through which you let us down, and you shall gather into your house your father, your mother, your brothers, and all your father's household. Then if anyone goes out of the doors of your house into the street, this blood shall be on his own head, and we shall be guiltless. But if a hand is laid on anyone who is with you in the house, the blood shall be on our head. By the way, they're expressing a confidence in God to deliver here. But if you tell this business of ours, then we shall be guiltless with respect to your oath that you have made us swear. And she said, according to your words, so be it. Then she sent them away, and they departed, and she tied the scarlet cord in the window. They departed and went into the hills and remained there in three days until the pursuers returned, and the pursuers searched all along the way and found nothing. Then the two men returned. They came down from the hills and passed over and came to Joshua, the son of Nun, and they told him all that had happened to them. And they said to Joshua, Truly the Lord has given all the land into our hands, and also the inhabitants of the land melt away because of us. What we see here is a woman whose faith is in its seed form. It's in its beginning form. But she can see there is, that's who God is. It's what they have. I've never seen a God like that. You go to chapter 6 and you read about the fall of Jericho. Guess whose house was spared? We all know the story. Rahab and her family. By the way, Rahab lives the rest of her life within the confines and, and, and within the Hebrew people. Not only does she live the rest of her life of that, but she actually marries a Jewish man. Salmon is his name. And what is most amazing is you read in, in Matthew chapter 1, verse 5, guess who's in the lineage of Jesus Christ? Salmon and Rahab, their son. She was a Gentile. Put in the same category with Abraham in reference to faith and used in a powerful, special way. Not only in Jericho, but in the future of the kingdom of God. She's only one of the two, two, uh, two women mentioned in the chapter 11, in the faith chapter. The other one is Sarah. And so she left a lasting impression. I look at this and I, and I, and I think of, of how God has 
shown us our Bible heroes through Scripture. And you notice how the Bible doesn't hide the, the weaknesses of our, our heroes, whether it be David or Rahab or even Abraham or Noah. He shows us the failings as well as their strengths. And the reality that they continued to come back to their faith and their strength because God continued to, to draw them. And that it was a growing process. A process that, that, that takes a lifetime. Scripture shows their strength, their weaknesses. And how God uses them, even their weaknesses at times. We are to seek God's holiness as believers. We're told to work out our salvation, which is the idea of seeking His holiness and seeking to be sanctified. What does sanctified mean? It means to be set apart, to be holy for God. How many of us are perfect in that? None of us. But it's a process that we go through. This transformation that we are in the process of going through even now. And God uses us at every stage of our life. Every stage of our transformation. Every stage of our growth. God uses us in some way to minister if we are willing. To do the works that He has set out if we are willing. What's interesting to me is that God sees the work already completed. He sees how it will be. And so it's kind of like he already sees it done, even though it's not yet finished. (laughs) And he knows how it turns out. And so he can say with confidence through Paul in Philippians, he will complete the work he has started in us. And that work complete means to completely fulfill the full picture of us being the kingdom of God, the children of God the brothers and sisters of Christ, sharing in His inheritance and resting with the fact that there is no condemnation in those who are in Christ Jesus. Through our confession, through our mouth, the words of our mouth, the belief in our heart, Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. Raised from the dead. He is our Savior. He is the one who has delivered me from my judgment, from my sins, from what my sins are due. The, the, the penalty that's due. And as a result, I rest with confidence that the work is done. It is finished. And that's what we say when we come to communion. When we come to communion, we share in the bread, we share in the, in the, in the, the cup. And the reality is, is that the bread represents the body, the, cup, uh, the, the grape juice represents the blood of Christ. And the reality is, is what we're saying is that, that we identify with this. We believe He is who He says He is. And the proof of that is I will share in this. We will share in this together. person of, uh, without faith, without saving faith, takes communion, means nothing. A person without saving faith that gets baptized, they just get wet. 
takes faith and it comes first. And it comes as a gift of God. And as we receive that gift and we start to go into this transformation, every time we take communion, it should be, theoretically, a slightly deeper relationship than it was before. If you feel like there's been some dry seasons, there probably has. But the reality is is that it's up to us to get into the Word, to meditate on it day and night, to let it become uh, the the thing that, that, that God has intended. It says that, We are like a tree, Psalm 1 again. We are like a a tree that has been planted by a stream. And the stream is, the word for stream there implies a a stream that is is more of a a culvert or a a feeder for uh, irrigation. Something that God has put in place to feed it, to nourish it. And, And as we seek to be what God wants us to be, we will bear fruit in its season. And it says, and its fruit will succeed in doing what, what it's supposed to do. That's who we are. We are, the, we are to be the, an orchard of God's trees here uh, and, and, and planted, nourished in sustenance by the living water of Christ. And as a result, accomplishing what God wants to accomplish for us. Again, coming back to Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10. Accomplishing the works that he laid out beforehand. Before the foundation of the world, it says in Ephesians chapter 1, he laid out the plan. So, as we share in communion this morning, I'd ask that you would uh, each you know, take the cup, take the bread, hold it until we've all been served, and we'll share together. And I'd ask the ushers to come and pass out the communion.